Hi, and welcome to the Tales from the Trail podcast by Matchplay. In this episode, Justin Chesham of Christopher Newport University men's soccer and I welcome coach Justin Cavanaugh. He believes that every coach and athlete relationship starts with trust. With two decades of coaching experience, he's devoted to helping athletes achieve greatness and empowering athletes worldwide. His training reaches the fastest and most successful athletes in sports, and through his platform, he seeks to enhance the lives of every athlete he connects with because he genuinely believes that sport can change lives. He's the author of the best-selling book, Man Up, and the visionary creator of the athlete-centric model. This one is jam-packed with stories and great information. Please enjoy. If you're enjoying the podcast and find it valuable, please consider visiting buymeacoffee.com matchplay. These small donations collectively help offset costs and other expenses associated with production of the podcast so I can continue to offer this service for free. Please take an extra minute to rate and review the podcast where you listen. This is a tremendous help. Share the podcast with whomever you think would be interested and will help in their process. Check us out on social media as well. The links can be found at matchplayrecruit.com. Yeah, our audience is primarily high school kids who are looking to continue into college as uh, high school or as college athletes. Um, And obviously their families who are helping in their journey, so to speak. You got it. Sounds right. good. Realistically, though, I mean, it's it, that's where we started. That's where this whole thing began, because, you know, Scott had a son that was going through the process and I I help kids in that process. But yeah, realistically, guys like yourself and uh, we've had different people in different walks of life where this really pertains to a lot of other people. And so, you know, parents that have kids are now starting to really jump in on this thing. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people that are chiming in uh, for different reasons. It's not just for the college recruiting process. So. Um, of course, we actually are hoping the audience, you know, we love to see different types of people, not just, you know, 16 year old boys trying to get committed to a good school. So, um, yeah, well, well, however I can help, I'm game. Great. Yeah. So, um, obviously there's a reason why I asked you to come on here, but, uh, get into a little bit of, you know, your background and, you know, how you ended up writing the book that you wrote and how you, you know, the method that you use when you're coaching and you know, who, who are your influencers, you know, just tell that story to start. Us yeah, off. You know, so I was born and raised in Miami. So pretty uh, sports dominated culture and community. Mm-hmm. And I was a five sport athlete growing up and had an opportunity. We had an older brother and we hung out with people that were predominantly older than him. So I was the, I was the runt of the group, uh, which you, you learn to, you know, once you get your butt kicked a few times, you learn to take care of yourself. It takes, it takes a little bit of, you know, takes a little bit of that to, to start to develop. But uh, I, uh, I grew up in a very sports-driven home and culture, which was, you know, our reward was the ability to play, whereas a lot of kids nowadays, that's their punishment, right? Our reward was, you know, being able to, to do what we enjoyed. And our punish was, punishment was stay inside. Um, and as you see, kind of culturally, things have shifted drastically in today's day and age. Um, I still think one thing is still true, which is my mission – once I became a coach was to teach life lessons through sports and to empower athletes to be able to express themselves without having, you know, any resistance to, you know, cultures or, you know, where they're from or whatever it may be. And uh, that's been kind of my driving force every single day. So I haven't changed, which I think is a really unique skill nowadays where people like flip flop and jump around. Um, Even in the college portal, uh, you know, the concepts are very, uh, you know, open to today's demographic where they're able to kind of like change their mind and almost rewarded for lack of consistency where people ask that, Hey, how did I have the success I had? Like, look, I haven't stopped in 20, you know, August was 21 years. So I haven't stopped. So, you know, it led me, you know, in the journey of kind of collecting my thoughts. I wrote the book man up because I had had that journey for over a decade helping kids. So I wanted to kind of write a book from a legacy standpoint, more so than a business card. I think a lot of people write a book to build their credibility. I wrote a book to pass down the information of kind of work that I was graduated from in my business. Um, You know, for many, many years, I spent almost every day meeting with parents and athletes and there being a gap between where their expectation is and where their results are at the moment. 
right? So their their state of awareness was a bit dis, you know, bit bit delusional. And my job was to give them a, a reality check. So that that book was a, a come to Jesus meeting for an athlete, and you know that stemmed from not just my experience as an athlete, but my experience as a coach and my my experience, you know, from kind of moving from student to teacher and that evolution and knowing kind of where your mindset is when you're in that state. So the book was written to middle school and high school athletes. Mm-hmm. So you get a lot of flack from your colleagues because they expect to get a technical book or they're expecting to get this, you know, um, you know, Shakespeare novel, you know, or Dostoevsky novel. And that's just not my style. I'm, I'm going to communicate to the, to the people that I care about being heard. I don't really care about anyone else. So I kind of cut through uh, posturing and showing up for people to, to look a certain way as long as they get the results. Right. So you're not worried about how many likes you get for one of your posts? Is that what you're, no, I you're care less. to say? <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm a big believer in social media because I understand it's where the attention is in the market. Uh, I don't enjoy it. I have very little desire to be popular in that world because I care about the popularity of the, the density of the people I care about. Right. So for instance, I, I don't, I mean, the volume is critical because it helps you filter, right? One of the blessings that I have with social media is I have a pretty strong brand today. Uh, and it started with one person at a time. Now, because I've hit kind of critical mass, I'm able to filter significantly easier. So people are attracted to things that will help them get to where they want to be. So if someone's going to help them achieve a goal that they want, they're naturally a natural magnet to that. And because I have a strong magnet that attracts and develops a level of attention, I have the ability to kind of discard and filter people that don't fit my model. Whereas earlier on, I've created my model in coaching because I realized that not everyone fit that when I, when I was able to work with them, but it was part of the business, right? I had to actually work with people that weren't the right fit. And that evolved into me understanding how my model is different and how it kind of has the ability to swing from one side of the continuum to the other. So there's a lot of lessons in that, but I'm fortunate today where I'm just a social media branding business is just a natural filtering mechanism. you know, so basically I operate as my life as a power five conference school. And, and it's, it's a really, it's a really nice place to be when you don't have to worry about financial or logistical issues to acquire clients. Right. So what kind of clients are you working with and you know, how, what's kind of your ideal client? Do you want somebody that's raw that you can develop or someone who kind of comes to you who, um, you know, is a little farther along and has the same mindset that you're looking to coach. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah. So it's a great question because I think if you look at, you know, my career, you know, with, you know, 20 plus years in the coach, uh, in the pro business and, you know, five Olympics going on or six now, it is a, it is a, a shocker that people go like, man, you work with all these different athletes in different sports, you know, you know, who's your ideal client? Well, my ideal client is actually someone who's in enough pain mentally to where they're going to make a change because they're a lot easier, right? Obviously I need someone to be open-minded and empty their cup so that I could pour into them, but it's really hard to do that if someone, if everything's working the right way. So if everything's firing on all cylinders, you know, it's a nice to have, but it's actually not the easiest, uh, you know, coachability, right? They're just not the easiest. It's probably great when it comes to, you know, attracting, but for me, I, I kind of, I'm, I'm in a place now where a lot of people come to me because they want to extend their career. You know, they've already made it. So there's less financial restrictions or there's less logistical issues. Um, but they want to kind of extend their career because they're more concerned about legacy. Whereas early in my career, it was a matter of kind of, uh, transitions. I, I became, uh, one of the thing that we learned is that I became somebody that was really, really good at transitional uh, change, meaning taking somebody from middle school to high school, getting them prepared for what that looks like so that the expectations were set before they were you know, put into those like pressure cooker situations, taking a kid from high school to college, helping them with the recruiting process, but the mindset of how do they show up? How do they shake a coach's hand? How do they operate? What do they look like when they step on campus? You know, real simple philosophy was, you know, something I learned by visiting the Naval Academy. You know, I walked around and I just 
as I was talking with the, the coaches, it was really easy because it was natural, right? My dad taught me a lesson that, you know, if you, if you, if you walk over or buy something, it's just as much effort than it is just to pick it up. So pick it up. And then those are the things that, that are almost unsaid and the most noticeable. So I taught those lessons to kids that are going through the recruiting process and the way that they behave made them stand out drastically amongst the rest of the, to the rest of the recruiting class. And if you think about that, if that's what's setting you apart, you know, the world's in an interesting place because, you know, you're not getting recruited if you suck. Let's just establish that, right? You're, 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 you know, good luck coming here if you're, if, if you're not good enough. Um, so I was really good at that, those transitional phases and then, you know, college to the NFL, NFL injury coming back. So I, I kind of have really built that kind of pain gap. Whereas if everything's working well for you, it's probably because I developed you since you were eight or 10 years old, or there's no reason for me to be in the picture. Because as a coach, I fundamentally believe that I'm going to make an impact. And I, uh, there's really not big of an impact if you're going to win anyways. So I, I don't, well, what's the point of me working with you to just hitch my trailer to your, to your truck? Because I already know that you're going to the top. Like that's not a lot of fun for me as a coach. Now, if I was in, if I was in coach's situation where it was a matter of, um, you know, winning and, and there's a system in place to where I have to recruit. Yeah. I mean, I only want those guys. I only want those guys that are going to be soldiers and do their job um, because they're going to fit into the culture of winning. But there's a window, right? For me, you know, the windows at which I'm really good at working with athletes are when things are going wrong, because that's when it's the easiest way for me to make a change. And I could kind of look back and say, hey, have you ever thought about reflecting on how and why you got here? You know, why are you always hurt? You think it's your body? You know, why, are you, wh you know, why is there always a problem between you and your teammates? You, you think it's the way you show up? You know, you always making excuses and it's your coach's fault. You constantly like hop to club to club, team to team. You know, you're already in the situation right now where something's going on. You know, have you ever thought that maybe that's you? No, no, no. Cool. Well, guess what? Then I'm going to be the guy that he hops from next. So I'm yep. not interested in that. So I just move on from those people. So the clients I have today, you know, for many years, I, I'd work with, you know, developmental athletes from eight to 28, right? Depending on where they are. So we had, we built a system for that. You know, I probably put more kids into college uh, at the high school level, going to college for sport than, you know, probably anybody in, in the U S we would put about 500 um, football players a year into, into colleges, you know, and then, between the other sports, we're probably averaging at least another 100 to 200 per year across all the other disciplines. There's just more of a volume in football, and that's kind of what my knack was. Um, and then there's more scholarships. So everyone's like, well, what about basketball? Yeah, I mean, there's just not that many people. You know, you look at, you know, basketball in the NBA, it's, it's just there's not that many guys. You know, there's a few thousand football players in the NFL right now. That's it. So people don't recognize, like, how small of a group this elite level is so when they try to be like they try to jump in that they don't realize how difficult it is um so where i am today mainly because of a time restraint i work with people that are at the olympic level or pro level and then my we have an executive division that predominantly works with c-level c-suite um, executives that basically have taught the same strategies and tactics that we work with our pro athletes and our Olympians to help them get on the podium to work with uh, executives in the boardroom because they've already won on the business side and they're where they're dropping the ball in their, in their case is not recruiting. It's not their injuries. They're dropping the ball in their family. They're dropping the ball in their, um, you know, on their health life. So we're looking for the health leaders of their family. So, you know, we're, we're gearing up right now for our Paris cycle um, for, you know, our next Olympics in 2024. And then obviously it's in the middle of the NFL season. Um, you know, we'll do some stuff in Europe from a soccer standpoint. Uh, and then, you know, really what I like to see happen is basically the opportunities slowly start to evolve to the athlete that's in the right place at the right time normally reaches out. And I'm a big believer that, you know, God's timing is better than mine. I'm a big believer of that because I've made those mistakes. I'm not a believer of that because that's the way I always was. I'm a believer of that because my career's evolved to that by trying to force a square peg in the wrong hole, right? That's just what it is. Yeah, it's, uh, I'll tell you, listening to your stuff, reading some of your book, uh, it's 
I have found that the uh, the demand for your message is so high, even if parents and kids, they don't recognize it like they used to, uh, especially young men. So, you know, I coach soccer. A lot of my kids come from uh, good money, both parents in the house, uh, you know, they good education, you know, they've been kind of given a lot of stuff and not want to call them soft or anything, but they didn't grow up with a lot of the challenges that a lot of kids who grew up with. And, you know, I had a Marine Corps father. I had tough coaches and tough mentors. And, you know, I messed up. I was told, you know, and yeah. sometimes corrected, you know, <laughs> at the house a little differently than by my coaches. And so, uh, especially in men too. And so uh, I've been working mainly with men, but even when I coached girls, I treated them like I treated my young men that I was coaching and they loved it. They respected it. And so kind of, are you experiencing a lot of pushback and what are you noticing basically inside of the society that we're living in today with your message and saying things that a lot of people think you're not supposed to say that. And I, I couldn't disagree more with that question, but I, I would love to hear kind of what you've experienced and what your message is to the people that think that maybe you're saying the wrong thing. Yeah. I, I don't try to sell the unsellable. Somebody doesn't want to hear my message. Piss off. We'll beat you on that. We'll beat you on the pitch. You know, you're bitching because you're losing. You don't want to hear my message. We'll keep losing. I don't care. <laughs> and, and I like, I, I don't, I'm going to be spread too thin if I'm going to try to get my message to everyone. And at the end of the day, I always felt that if I developed athletes from eight years old, 10 years old, all the way to the top, because I started at the top, like first clients were like, you know, first round draft picks, first like Olympic guys took a gold medal. So it was a don't screw it up phase in the early part of my coaching. It wasn't a, I'm the man. It was a, Oh, don't F this up. You have a great opportunity. Everyone's like, Oh, look at what you did. Like I didn't do anything. I just didn't screw it up. Now I'm building and creating, but, but again, I got to that point because of trust. I got to that point because I, I had success, you know, and then I had to work back and go, oh, okay, what's my role? Because I was just a small piece of that puzzle earlier on. Now I kind of oversee the entire puzzle and I'm building those bridges and I'm helping everybody with everything, but I don't sell the unsellable. If somebody doesn't want to listen to my message and they're offended by me, I mean, get over it. You know, my, my I mean, my dad's Irish. My mom's Cuban. I grew up in, in Miami. Like what more do you want me to tell you other than if I'm around you, I'm going to offend you just because I care about you. Right. And if you don't like that, well, then move on. And I tell you who doesn't like it most of the time, my competition. So I don't, that makes me fine because it just slowly starts to increase our gap. Yeah. People, most of the time, people will put up with the fact that uh, I'm a pain in the ass because we win and around us, we're going to win. Like there's a track record for success. Ain't nobody telling Co coach Saban, man, you're, you're just not that nice. I'm sorry. Seems to be pretty nice to me. If you're going to put a national championship ring on, on my son's finger, if he's going to go, you're going to put him in a position where you're going to create discipline, where he's going to graduate. You're going to create an environment to where he's going to be in the best position possible for him to lead his family one day and leave a legacy. Oh, and you're going to, you're going to hinder that to your kid because he said something that you didn't like. Are you kidding me? You know, I see more pictures with, with Coach Saban with athletes that are in the NFL going back, hugging him and telling a story than people complaining. Yep. The only ones that are complaining are not in that circle. They didn't because they didn't invite themselves into that circle by their work ethic and discipline that they had before they had that opportunity. There's no such thing as a good or a bad opportunity. It's just the preparation for that opportunity that's going to dictate your perspective on it. Oh, you know, coach didn't give me a shot. No, no, you little shit. You just aren't good enough. Right. That's the difference. And then you imagine telling that to a parent nowadays. You kidding me? I mean, at the end of the day, I'd be, I, are you guys still in the USA South coach? Uh, they, they kicked us out, kind of kicked us oh, out. All these conferences, they, but they changed the charter. Yeah. 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 But I mean, you start looking at those, you know, those conferences particularly and like kind of where you are demographically, you're working with a, a, a group of parents that are successful. Traditionally, 80% of the kids that you're going to be recruiting are good academic kids, you know, solid family, good character. Uh, you know, that doesn't mean they're not hardworking or talented. You know, I, I would, I would argue that too, that they're not hardworking. What, what it means is their version of discipline is different, right? That's it. Because the accountability that is needed in a home that they have no choice 
versus a home that's basically very um very much led by uh hey you just do it on your own and you figure it out it's just different i think kids i think young kids crave discipline um i think that they are craving someone to believe in them i think that they are craving a level of excellence but again i'm also attracted to that group of people so what happens is is i start to naturally gravitate to people that are that are wanting to be coached so maybe I'm just discard, discarding a group of people, but I end up not working with them well. I've learned early on that I don't work well with people that are you know, not high achievers. I just don't work well with them. It's not my strength. You know, I, I did personal training for a long time, and you could call what I, what I do as a, as a trainer. I would say most people wouldn't say that, uh, but in the industry, if you say, hey, what do you do? Oh, you're just a personal trainer. You know, oh, you're just a coach. Yeah, that's fine. But the clientele that I work with, if I worked with the general population, I don't do well. Like I, I don't, like I won't have a lot of success because they're using us as a recreational outlet in their life versus I am their, like the, the aspirational goals they have are their identity. And they're like, they understand that they're going to have a lot of resentment towards anyone in the future if that person holds them back from what they're trying to achieve. And then they're going to regret themselves on how they handled that situation if they didn't like kind of volunteer for accountability. Well, okay. So you have, uh, let's say you get a kid, good kid, good athlete. Mom's hesitant. Mom doesn't like your style. You know, you know, deep down that kid needs it. That kid wants it. He may not be saying it yet, but man, he's going to thrive listening to you just get after him. What do you say to the parents? Because we're going to have some parents listening to this that have some young kids that are about to come play for me who, you know, like I said, I was a military brat. So I, I have a certain discipline style. You know, what do you tell those parents when they get to a coach that they're like, oh, this is different than I've ever seen before. This is harder. The discipline's much higher. What do you say to those parents? What do you say to those families? I think, you know, there's nobody in our world that knows more about uh, a young kid's life than his mother. I know and nobody, nobody. Right. The father probably has better self awareness of like what the kids like his, you know, but the mom understands that he needs that discipline. It's just going to be harder on her than it is on him. That's fair, right? There's no doubt about it. I think moms believe. Um, I think moms have less belief in their kids than dads. I actually believe dads have a greater belief in their kid. My kid, so they. That's why they oversell their kid. Whereas moms are like, don't treat Johnny that way. So you just start to use the language that they're they're using in the house or publicly, um, you know, internally dads are probably harder. Externally, they're probably softer. Uh, and again, these are these are I'm using I'm using my own opinions on things. So that by no means do I have a statistic to back it up, other than you know, for 20 years I've been doing this and it's worked out pretty well. Uh, what I would what I would ask a a, a mom if they're coming to me like that because i don't believe let me just share something with you regarding kind of the art and science of coaching everyone thinks there's a personality type everyone's like oh i bucketed you who you're here you're an introvert you're an extrovert here's your coaching style look we are complex human beings they are there's so much going on in our lives that i think that you can't look at a single factor and determine how to handle someone I think that everything is multifactorial. I think that your coaching needs to evolve. Um, I think that you need to respect that people have shit going on in their lives that we are never going to see. And the majority of moms or dads that have that on their kids is because of something that they went through in their childhood or that they're going through in their current like growth. Because when you think about it, most of the parents that you're dealing with, coach, they're actually not that old. Like grand scheme of things, they're not that mature. You know, I have a I have a six year old son right now. My parents had me early. They had me when I was younger, so I was kind of almost watching my parents grow up. But my parents were very mature, very disciplined. Because there's a difference between voluntary toughness and involuntary toughness. There's a massive difference between environmental responsibility, right, and then choosing to be disciplined 
I had no choice. There was, there was the only option was to do certain things because the other option would have ended me up in a, not a great place. You know, I ended up going to private school by the time I was in high school because I, I had a lot of fun, but that's my perspective. My parents would have called that trouble, but I would have called that fun. My friends would have said, man, we had a good time. They would have said, eh, you were kind of headed down a different path. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so it's a perspective th- change, right? But I think there's a difference between involuntarily tough, where I could actually create toughness out of showing up every day, choosing to do certain things. And when you're dealing with kids that are coming from a good home, you have to create involuntary toughness. Whereas growing up in environments that are slightly different than yours, coach, that you're running into, I mean, I I bet you less than 5% of the kids that you run into are coming from uh, early stage broken homes. And early stage violence home, early stage uh, drug homes, mm-hmm. and and I later on probably you probably have a higher percentage because kids that are in uh, academically sound environments growing up where they're like highly intelligent families and highly educated families and uh, highly successful families they do have more of a split later on traditionally those parents start to split up between fourteen and eighteen because how much of those parents when they're when they're wealthy, they basically say, hey, I'll stick it out until, you know, Johnny's in college and then some make it and some don't. Whereas uh, families that are broken early on are normally from a lower demographic and they're normally from environments that are probably less uh, academically educated. That doesn't mean that they're not intelligent. That just means that they, the opportunities that they had are different. And that's pretty traditional across America. When you go globally, it's a completely different you know, culture. People have no idea how spoiled we are in America. But like, if you look at globally and you start looking at kind of what happens in Brazil and different parts of the world at the soccer level, um, completely different. Uh, but speaking on America's culture, traditionally, parents um, they won't create artificial toughness in their kids. So what ends up happening is they create, you know, a very authentic softness and. There's going to be some change. What I like to say is, would you rather have control of the discipline or him be disciplined by the system? Because the system will eat you up and he, they don't give a shit. I guarantee you, there's no coach in America that cares more about your son than you do. So if you care about your son, then you better let that coach help do his job. And I don't think a lot of parents are ready for that because they haven't got out of the way. A very easy lesson to give parents is say, hey, I want you to have the car ride home twice, once in your head and then once in reality, because if you don't do it in your head first, you're going to continue to make the same mistakes. Yeah. So talk about voluntary toughness creating, you know, how do you, in your mind, what does that look like? Um, You know, how is that environment created in in a home where, like you're talking about, you know, both parents are educated, you know, there's this high academic standard and, and you know, it can create some softness, so to speak. So, you know, when yeah, you I think that I think yeah. voluntary toughness needs to come purely from a direct action of discipline. I'm choosing to do something. I have an I have a um, ambition, right? I have an ambition. My actions every single day need to be aligned with that ambition. Right. And if they're not, there's a disconnect, that disconnect, that gap is going to be where, um, the gap of the results, right. And kind of that range, it's going to be, they're going to be separated. So what I would want to do is constantly reflect back to their results. And if the, if there's a results gapped, there's probably an action gap to their ambition because that's their expectation, right? Their expectation is, is that I want to be here. So any level of depression that you run into, which is what something that we run into in today's society a lot more often, there's two reasons why I think we have a lot more uh, depression. It's not because we're putting a tagline on it or not that we're actually, you know, writing it out and we're saying, Hey, that's the stamp that we're putting on the world when people act this way. It's because first and foremost, we've allowed it to happen. Right. I mean, look, you guys have beards and the other one has uh, you know, a hairline that's, that's receding a little bit. So no, no, my this question, is, this is about 20 years going, man. So, hey, man, listen, I, I, I got you there. <laughs> so my, my point is, is that uh, I would say I'm not aged, but I'm leathered. Right. Exactly. But um, my, 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 yeah, my point to that is 
we probably didn't have a choice in the sense that the minute it happened, we got, we got a, 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 like immediate feedback. Sometimes yeah. that immediate feedback's a look, sometimes it's a, a voice and sometimes it's a backhand right. or the feedback came from the world. Right. Yep. And, um, these kids nowadays, the parents are interrupting the learning process. So there's a coaching loop, right? Where we try to teach something, we train it, we develop it. It's hard. Then what we, what's hard, we do over and over, and then we loop it back around and we connect those dots. Parents interrupt the learning process. And every time they interrupt it, they string it out and they make it harder and harder and harder. Yeah. They don't realize they're making it harder until the gap is too far. They then now start to feel bad and they go, shit, I screwed this up. And then they, what do they try to do? Then they try to over-index on where they screwed up and then just creates a bigger problem. So, you know, I, I, I think that our perspective today, like our wisdom and our age, um, and I wouldn't say I'm old by any means, but once you get into your, like your thirties and forties and you reflect back on your athletic career, you go, man, I could have done more. That's what happens. You just basically go, man, I could have done more if I was just more disciplined. That's it. Like, what is the biggest difference between, um, you know, some guys and other people? Most of the time, it's basically discipline. And what's interesting in that is that even if you don't have the talent, even if you don't have the talent, you do have the internal belief that you could have done something. The issue is not that I'm upset that I couldn't go play, you know, with LeBron James and dunk on him. You know, I'm 5'11". We know that's not happening, right? But in my world, you know, playing college football and fighting and then having a wrestling background and sports, I could have done something in my world. All we're trying to do is live up to our own expectations. And depression comes first off is that we've allowed it to happen. There's a victim mentality. And then the second thing I think is people don't move, right? So things that are aiming for you are easily, you know, hitting their target. Because the target is not moving. But when you say, hey, get up and move, it's a lot harder for that thing to hit a moving target. You don't randomly get hit with a dodgeball. It's hard enough to hit something when we're aiming for it. So if people actually just moved towards their goal, it would be really, really hard for all the people that are negative trying to hit them actually to hit them. So if you just said, Hey, I'm going to have the tenacity to, um, keep moving. Even if, uh, even if things go wrong, you're probably going to have less obstacles in your way, but people that have a victim mentality, people that are welcoming in, um, they're welcoming in this kind of feeling bad for them. What ends up taking place is then the world feels bad for them. And the only people that coddle them are the people at the place that are close to them. You're not getting coddled from anybody above you. So the people that are literally attracted to someone making an excuse, people that are very attracted to help you and hold you and hug you are the people that are in that place. Because the people that are above you are the people that are at at a place where you're trying to go. They're not in the mental space or emotional space to even see that you're going through that. So what ends up happening is people that are depressed are constantly around lower level people. It's just why it's just what it is. I mean, name one environment that you think a, 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 a state of excellence operates with a whole bunch of depression, depression, uh, depression athletes. It doesn't exist. Now, if you could tell me that, then I'll be willing to hear it. But in my lifetime, I have not seen it. And if you go back through the course of history, guys, history is just going to repeat itself. It's just different ways. We're dealing with human behavior. So again, I think people are a lot more complex than a personality type. I don't think that there's one way to deal with somebody. I don't think that we could basically say, you know, oh, here's a positive thing, negative, and then positive in coaching, and I'm going to sandwich shit. You know, if you keep doing that, every time you tell me something positive, I'm going, hey, where's the next thing coming? Right? Because people aren't dumb. Kids are not stupid. They're lazy. And it's our job as coaches to basically be like, hey, I need to get you going. I was lazy at one point. I think I'm lazy on a regular basis. I just happen to have a wife that reminds me on a regular basis. I don't have enough. I don't have enough space in my world to be lazy. And growing up, I had a mother and father that worked multiple jobs that I I had a model for hard work. Yeah. Talk about, um, like you've obviously seen 
high, really super high performers, you know, the elite of the elite. And talk about what their discipline looks like and, you know, maybe how that differentiates them from people who aren't at that level. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we, we, we call it like being a pro, right? P stands for passion. I don't care who you are. You better be excited about what you do. Um, and you have to show it with that every day because there's, there's going to be some days that you don't feel that way. So you have to, you have to kind of create that. And the way that you create it is you look back inside and say, why do I want to do this? Mm-hmm. Um, the R is being kind of, uh, resilient because if you're on a relentless pursuit of your passion on the way there, there's going to be things in your way, right? So yep. that's where the R comes from. And then the O is ownership. Anyone that's a pro has to take ownership and accountability in their world, which means I can't blame someone else. Yeah. So that, that's what being a pro means. And then if you show up like that on a regular basis, man, yeah. I'm taking ownership of kind of my situation. I'm, I'm going to be resilient because I understand that I have a res- relentless pursuit of my passion. Then, man, when things come my way, it's just a, it's just a wake up call to this is a great opportunity. Like they're excited when shit goes wrong because they realize they're getting closer to where they want to go. Right. But that awareness isn't there for athletes that are not as mentally strong because when right. it gets hard, that's like right around the corner. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so they look at those moments. This is why when uh, pro athletes at an elite level get hurt, that's when they give me a call. This is why when pro athletes get hurt, you see them work harder because they understand they got to get out of this quick. They got to take care of their body. They cannot drag out the injury. So the question is, is the athletes that you're working with, why, why is their timeline completely dictated by something in a book from 20 years ago? You know, two years ago, I had an athlete break his foot, Liz Frank fracture in his foot on, uh, on a, on a game, right. In the NFL. And yeah, we have some crazy modalities. Yes. We have really, really advanced, you know, um, advanced, you know, performance, um, ways to enhance the body from all the way from crazy woo woo shit, like crystals and, you know, oils and stuff like that, all the way to understanding that the body is incredibly, uh, resilient. And if you just put it in an environment for it to heal itself, it will do an incredible job. And then on the rehab side, it's a completely different structure. Whereas a lot of people think like, Oh, it was just tape that ankle. So that athlete came back and his job right? His job is on the line. So come Monday morning, you know, we're evaluating where he is. He's, he's back to playing in, in the next week. And that's unheard of, but how does that happen on a regular basis at the elite level? They just discard anyone that says, Hey, you gotta, you gotta sit out this, this window. They, they discard that. Whereas most people, when they're told that they kind of like, they get all mopey and then they dive into that. So it becomes, to me, it becomes a, you know, it's a mindset, right? I think it makes the biggest shift. And that mindset is just how they approach any one of those areas in their life, right? You know, high performers crave the truth. They crave it in real time. High performers do not let the timeline control them. They dictate the timeline. You know, high performers, they are, are constantly ahead versus always being a lagging indicator and being reactionary. High performers build a buffer. So when things start to chew up their buffer, right, they still have enough space to get out of there. You work with a lot of younger athletes. Think about when you're teaching an athlete how to drive. You know, they're 16, you know, 15, 16, 17, depending on what range they're in as they start to get their license. You always want to keep a lot of space between you and that car in front of you. And as we, as, as young educators of America, we say, Hey, you know what? It's not you. I'm worried about it's the other drivers. Bullshit. I'm actually worried about you. I've been in the car with you. You drive like shit. I'm (laughs) absolutely worried about you. You suck. Right. (laughs) So what do I do? Hey, you got to give a lot of buffer between you and that car in front of you. Don't try to squeak by. You know, my, I, I learned how to drive a car on a stick shift. One of the, I I drove a, you know, literally like three on a tree. So there was no brakes, right? If you didn't give yourself enough space, right. You were hitting that car bottom line. That's what was happening. So you had, you had to learn how to, how to work that clutch and slow it down because those brakes weren't getting you there. Nowadays, you know, the car will break itself. And what I would, you know, recommend is leave a big buffer 
between you and your problems, which means still to this day, I have my best days if I view it like game day. So if I'm speaking on stage or I'm presenting, you know, even at the Olympic level, like I'm setting out my coaching attire, like it's game day. Like I was a kid in middle school getting ready for my game. You know, like I, I, the worst sleep I ever got was ever like right before a game. Cause I'm constantly thinking on it. My brain's going and, and you know, I played well. It's not an issue about that. You know, everyone wants to say, Hey, you got to go to bed on time and you got to eat a certain way. Like, look, some of the worst habits I've developed in regarding performance is because, you know, I, I enjoy it too much. So what I would recommend is to like, look at the high performers and, and accept the fact that nothing's going to be perfect, but you're just building your buffer, build the gap between you and the car in front of you. And, the, and, and where you are is your daily habits. And the bigger the gap is, is basically having your clothes on time, having your equipment set up. I mean, coach, how many times is, have you had to deal with a kid that didn't bring his uniform? Uh, I can count one time and, uh, we didn't let him play and it hasn't happened since. (laughs) So why, why do you, why did that kid and the rest of the team respond so harsh to that? Like, why were they, why did they, there was such a drastic gap between probably that kid not bringing his uniform and then not being able to play. Why did he respond to that? Yeah. he, He clearly didn't take care of his business before he needed to take care of his business. You know, he'd probably show up to the locker room five minutes before the bus was leaving and he grabbed what he could and got out of there. And halfway down the road, he realized, Oh crap, I, I left my, my Jersey sitting in the locker. And I mean, that's, there's, there's what you said is perfect. I mean, you treat it every day like it's a game day. And I couldn't agree with that more. I've got little kids and I know that if I wake up in the morning and I go, I'll just take care of it in the morning. <laughs> I will fall behind very, very, very quickly, and then I'll be rushed, and then I'll get angry, and it'll affect the rest of my day. But if I if I get stuff done the night before, take care of their lunch for school, get their clothes ready, uh, I got a baby, so I'm prepping the milk and prepping the baby stuff. It's like if I take care of all that in the morning, man, I can I can crush the next day. The day's easy. The day's so easy. I couldn't agree with that more. And that's just day to day stuff. And uh, you know, when you're talking about the athletes. We tried to, you know, I'll tell you what, it, it was, it was a little bit easier early on. I think it's getting a little tougher now. I think that more kids are coddled than ever before, but we have to remind them all the time to, you know, just drink water, you know, yep. eat right. Uh, make sure you're just clean your room, uh, yep. lay out your clothes. I mean, I, one of the things that we try to do is we, we try to say, Hey, okay, you got a nine o'clock class. Well, you better wake up at like seven thirty, eight o'clock. Cause yep. You need to take a shower. You need to brush your teeth. You need to eat some breakfast. Probably do that before you brush your teeth. Uh, you may want to have a little coffee, get something going in the system so you can get it out of your system before you go to class. We're talking about some certain things there. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, if you attack the day the day before, you start your attack the day before. Absolutely. How can you possibly go wrong. I mean, you're going to be way ahead of it. You created the buffer. You created the buffer the night before. Exactly. And for me, I mean, I'll be transparent. My first year, I mean, I was 5 a.m. Kavanaugh because every day I was on that list of being in trouble from the day before because I showed up late. I walked in late to class every single day. I didn't make mistakes. I wasn't a jerk. I didn't drink. And I drank probably two, like twice in college. Once was on a, uh, for a wedding and birthday. And the other one was for a funeral, literally two drinks all through college. So I did, I, I just wasn't, I wasn't, uh, swayed by some of those like decisions. However, I showed up with that strength coach on a regular basis doing my runs at 5am because I just was late to class because it wasn't my priority to the point where I would show up and the coach would be like, Kavanaugh, you're not on the list today. I'm like, I'm going to do something tomorrow. I'll see you. I'm going to get mine in today. Cause I'm already up to the right. point where I would get up at four something, do my damn conditioning, have the coach want to beat the crap out of me and then show up late to my damn nine o'clock class. That was my personality. Right. Um, right. But fun fact, never showed up late to practice. Never showed up late to other things. So it's like, where are your priorities? Right. And, you know, I think that, you know, that accountability kids crave. Um, And then I think what happens is it's an environmental standard. By you doing that with one kid, creating the discipline, everyone else sees it. And then also, I think coaches are a lot more sensitive than people give them credit for. Whereas if that kid, and again, I'm using it out of context, so it's not a fair assessment. But if that kid had never made uh, a accountability mistake in your 
like working with you. And he was, let's say a junior. And for three years underneath your, your, your guidance, he's on point. He did the right thing. He doesn't have that pattern of doing that um, to the point where you know that that's not an issue. And then now all of a sudden you start to see like his grades slipping, something's going on. And then that happens as a coach. You probably have a little bit of like spider sense of saying, Hey, what's going on? Yep. But what happens is, is it's harder for us as coaches to identify what's going on because kids are like this all the time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're like, Oh, well, you're not sensitive in my kid's situation. Well, your kid's situation is actually his life on a regular basis. 24 right. Yeah. Whereas this is not a situation. This is who he is. Right. So if it was different, right? If it was, hey, this is out of alignment with who he is on a character level, we need to talk about it. Different conversation. So most parents, I think, are, again, because they're constantly jumping in and, and, and interrupting the feedback loop you eliminate the chance for change and you eliminate the chance for learning because you're interrupting the actual learning process. So if you, if you didn't do that, you're probably going to be in a significantly better you know, position as a parent because your kid would become more accountable. Yeah. I, uh, I was looking at your book this morning and you have, you have a central thesis that uh, as a man, we've all heard it. At some point we heard it. You want to hear it maybe when you're really, really young and you use it to never hear it again but it's grow some balls. It's just yeah. something that a man just, I, man, oh, like if Scott, if I was doing something, Scott told me to do that. Like that would just, it gets me right to my core. And I of think that most men, most men feel that way. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking at them though. B, you know, you got balance, accountability, lust, love, sacrifice. You got a favorite? You got one that's like the most important? I know they're all kind of go together. I know that you need one for the other, but there's gotta be one that like, Man, this is the one for me. Yeah, so like I'm a big believer in momentum because I think what the the hardest the hardest thing to do is get started. So you build some momentum, and what happens is is you create a little bit of balance. Balance has has very little to do with actual fifty fifty. I've never seen somebody in actual balance that's successful. It's the mm -hmm. people that are out of balance that are in alignment. So someone who's in balance is I'm in balance with my goals. I want to be a Division one athlete. I want to play college sports. You know, if I hey I want to go to CNU. Listen, there's no difference between the division one level and division three level other than really finance. That's it. It's how much money does the organizational have to make things look prettier, but there's no difference in your commitment level. People need to get over that. They really do. And I, I can say that with, with a level of you know, confidence saying that, you know, CNU is close to a number of different universities and you, you're just pulling from a larger group of people. You know, whereas those, you know, there's people have a very misrepresentation of those, those levels, in my opinion. But if you have an aspiration to play college sports, go to the place that falls in love with you, right? Fall in love with the place that falls in love with you. But if I have an aspirational goal of playing at that level, I'm going to be completely out of balance with my life. It's going to look like I am academically strong. It's going to look like I am super, super focused. It's going to look like I am very, very disciplined. It's going to look like I'm going to show up and work out and train. That's balance, right? Accountability is I'm going to take ownership in my work. I'm not going to make excuses because it's my life. Lust right. is this idea that I, I want something. It's the earlier stages of momentum to get going. And love is I'm doing it at a deep core level of why. And then sacrifice is understanding, hey, the reality is, is that I'm not going to be able to live the life that my friends have if I want something that they don't have. And if you ask me which one's my favorite, it's probably love. Because I think as a man, you, you grow up with this level of kind of harshness in the culture. And all you're doing is craving love and acceptance. And if you didn't have that growing up, then this is where some of these kind of cultural, like, or you start to see like social gaps come in from years over years. And, you know, you hear the whole ad adage around like, you know, a, you know, an easy life will develop, you know, soft men, a soft, uh, hard, you know, hard times develop strong men. And it kind of has this revolving world history model. And it's very, very true. But we're taking basically gaps in time and we're not looking at it and saying, hey, you still have a choice to put yourself in certain situations. So, for instance, we're looking at like a political, the political nature of where we are today and saying, OK, well, what times are we in? Because now the world is more soft than it was, you know, a number of years ago. But the reality of it is, is we all want a better life and a better future for our kids than what we have. That's a fact. 100%. You know, where I grew up. I would not raise my child. 
but I loved where I was and I didn't know it was what it was until I got out of that environment. So, and I guarantee you, my parents' environment was drastically different than the world that they raised me in, you know, and their parents' environment was World War II and, you know, a, a, a grandparent coming from Cuba. So I can imagine that. So my great grandmother used to sweep the floor and there's no tile or carpet. It's dirt. I have no perspective on that. We're completely spoiled. So we're all in a better situation. So you have to actually create an environment. You have to create an environment that is aligned with your values as a family. And as a parent listening to this, you have to decide, do you want your kids to, to be constant excuse makers or you want your kids to have a level of accountability and discipline and honesty in their life? If that's the case, you can't remove them from that level of accountability. Um, tack on the back of that, the importance of knowing your why. Um, I think that's a, it's a crucial thing for everyone to examine within themselves and, and, you know, being honest with yourself as well and surrounding yourself with people who are going to be honest with you. So like, you know, maybe kind of work through that. Yeah. So my coaching model is, um, it's an athlete centric model that I developed over years and it's mind, body, spirit. And the idea is that athletes come to us because they want to change their body. Guys, that's really easy. It's my, it's, it's train, fuel, recover. That's all you do. And mind you, I train some of the greatest athletes, you know, in the world. And that's all we do. It's just the difference between technical, tactical, you know, and physical uh, differences in their programming. That's all it is. But in regarding um, the actual work to train the body, it's, you train it, you fuel it and you recover it. Mm -hmm. That's what people come to us for. But the fastest way to make that change is not physiological, it's mental, right. right? So we have to make the change at the mind. And at the level of the mind, it's the mic, right? The voice of the athlete. Mastery, whatever you're doing when it comes to skill development or acquisition, you want to master it because once you go deep, you can't ever like unsee that. You can never unring a bell that's too deep. Once you see things at a very, very deep level, you can't unsee them. So you want to develop a mastery in something, especially in skill. I is for image and that's self image uh, because I think that the way you view yourself is more important than, you know, than anything else. And then C is for confidence. Confidence is how the world sees you and you're always going to fall back on one. So for instance, if you don't have confidence, it's probably because your self image is, is a problem because the minute, you know, coach says something to me one time. And if I'm shaken by that, it's because I don't have a good self image of myself, right? That's basically what it is. I don't have a good self-image of myself because I know deep down inside, I didn't put the work in to develop a level of mastery. So again, it all goes back and back, back one. So the fastest way I can make a change in the body is not physiological. It's emotional and psychological. So I want to actually change their mind first. Then it will change their body. And then athletes will stay with me as a coach because I will change their spirit of who they are as a human. And their spirit is breaking up into three Ps. So the first one's passion. Really, really simple. Obviously, you got to have a drive for something. Um, purpose, right? You go from what I want to what my why is. So purpose is the deep core of who you are and why you're doing it, right? That's the love. And then the last P is for principles. You could make plenty of shortcuts in this world. Most people that got to the top cut corners and they don't stay at the top. The people that stay at the top, they did it and they did it the right way and they don't cut corners, which means it's a longer journey. It's a harder mountain to climb, but you get to stay at the top longer because the people that are, you see have a little bit of success and then they fall off. Normally it's because they cut corners to the top. They've, they've jeopardized their principles for their overall goal. So it's passion, purpose, and then principles. Uh, overlapping components between those, um, concepts of mind, body, and spirit are drive. You want an athlete. If you got to think about it from a parent's perspective, you want your kid to have a level of drive where they're self-motivated. They're coming from, you know, internal motivation, not all external. Uh, they're showing up, they're doing this stuff on their own. Number two, you want your athlete to have a state of calm, meaning when the pressure's on, they are still who they are. They're not rattled by the world. And this is not just on the pitch. This is not just on, you know, the baseball diamond. This is not just on the football field. This is literally in life. Athletes that have a flow state, they know how to get into peak state. They have a sense of calm about them. They're not rattled by the world. And then the last one is character. 
who you are as a man tells more about, you know, what you could achieve. And, um, I think you will achieve more if you have stronger character because you'll have the right people around you. You'll attract better people. And in the center of that, the heart of what we do is the athlete and the elite athlete model, in my opinion, is athlete centric. So you start looking at those kind of nine accelerators on the outside of that model and you figure out where there's a gap in your coaching and where's there a gap in your training. Athletes will have a really good self-reflection. So that's how I look at my coaching. That's the athlete journey that we take somebody through. Um, and then all that, the only thing that changes is the goal. <laughs> that's it. You know, obviously there's a talent component. There's a goal component, you know, and um, that's, that's the, the model that we look at. Um, yeah. Um, the last thing I was going to ask is, uh, just, you know, try to delve into, um, you know, what's really made you say, wow, about some of the athletes that you've worked with. Um, you know, They're obviously fucking freaks. Some of these guys are absolutely animals. <laughs> right. Like Jesus, you know, I had, right. a, I had a, I had a, like a nine-year-old, me, you know, meg me the other day. And I was like, what the heck? This is bullshit. You know, <laughs> like, where, like where, what's going on? So, you know, skill, yeah. absolutely. That's one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's fascinating on how good their skill is today. Um, and how quickly somebody could just put a summer in and focus on one thing and get massively better at it. Um, and then I would say the other thing is really the thing that wows me is nowadays how the kids are super talented. Yes, they're physically gifted. Yes, they're hardworking. But I, I feel like um, you don't need to have an involuntary tough environment to create greatness. I think that as long as you have it inside of you, we have a saying that says, you know, I don't chase greatness. Greatness chases me. And um, my athletes respond back with, you know, great greatness takes time whenever they're slow, whenever they're like warming up and they're taking too long. They're like, Hey, great. Greatness takes time. Coach. You don't right. rush. You don't rush greatness. And I'm just like, damn it. This is what I'm doing. So what's really impressive is to watch, um, athletes have taken what coaches have taught them passing that down. It's probably one of the things that I have the most pride in. I think that there's four universal truths. And I think that these languages, these universal languages are, um, the true anywhere in the world. And a universal language is one is music, right? No matter where you are in the world, no matter what, you know, uh, where you're from, music will move you. Number two is art, the ability for you to, you know, see things. It speaks to you in a different way. You don't need to, you don't need to understand what the artist is trying to say, but it's what means it to you. And number three is food. I think if you break bread with somebody, you could really get, you could understand a lot about them. Do they push their chair in? Do they say thank you to the waiter? You know, do they, what type of manners do they have? Um, I, I have found that the worst manners are from the wealthiest families. So I always want to break bread with a recruit. I want to see what he's like. I want to see how he treats people. I want to see if he puts his plate away. Um, <laughs> they don't even know where the damn fort goes. You know, you grow up in an environment that's not as wealthy it's a big deal to a parent to have like my mom would have never let me out of the house with a shirt that wasn't ironed. It just wouldn't have happened. Right. And the reason why that wouldn't have happened is, is because when you're in a certain status, you have to show up a certain way because you don't have that buffer. Right. Whereas somebody who's probably from a higher wealth category, you know, who, who gives a crap what they look like. Um, and then the fourth universal language is sport. It defies all cultural differences, you know, whether you're wearing a face mask or, or helmet or you're, you know, you're just wearing a uniform. It doesn't matter what color you are. doesn't matter what language you speak. Um, I mean, coach, if I put you on the field and I had you coach people in South America, do you speak Spanish? I do not. All right. But could you coach soccer still? I speak soccer. Well, yeah. look, at, look at what happens across the world. These guys uh, will join on a club team and there's 10 different natural languages on that team and they are still trying to create create their own music on the field that's and, all they're uh, trying to do i could put you in the middle of, i could put you in the middle of japan i could put you in the middle of um you know colombia and brazil and, and and there's no such thing as a language barrier in sport great so for me those universal languages are are 
faster ways to work with athletes. And it's a way to actually drive our bigger purpose, which is teaching life lessons through sports. So um, that's kind of what I'll leave you with uh, on a, on a concept thing. And I, I just appreciate your time coach. Thank you. That was awesome. I, uh, I took more notes than I normally do. So <laughs> we'll be, we'll be installing some of this stuff at three o'clock when we have practice. Today. You got it, man. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much. Let me hit stop real quick. Thank you for listening to the Tales from the Trail podcast by Matchplay. If you're enjoying the podcast and find it valuable, please consider visiting buymeacoffee.com slash matchplay. These small donations collectively help offset costs and other expenses associated with production of the podcast so I can continue to offer this service for free. Please take an extra minute to rate and review the podcast where you listen. This is a huge help. Share the podcast with whomever you think would be interested and will help in their process. Check us out on social media as well. The links can be found at matchplayrecruit.com. See you on the trail.